You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. Big news right off the bat for the Delaware men's basketball team. Yesterday was the media day where they do the preseason polling and kind of the first introduction to the Delaware season and the CAA season. And then today, negative news. Ryan Allen, it's announced by the team, will miss the next two months of action due to a foot surgery. Had to have a metatarsal uh, in his foot prepared. Basically had surgery today. They expect him to be back in two months' time, which would put him back on the court in mid-December, right around the time where CAA play begins for the Blue Hens. But this is a guy who is the team's top returning scorer after Ryan Daly transfers. Allen's next in line with 15 points a game last year. He's the reigning CAA Rookie of the Year, and he was the only Blue Hen yesterday to be named to the CAA all-preseason team. He's on honorable mention, so he wasn't even fully on the team, but he's kind of the top guy for this Blue Hens team returning and Carter got back. all CAA mentioned, too. Okay. I think yeah. Eric Carter got all CAA mentioned. As the big man. Uh, but this you know, this guy you expect to be your top scorer, primary scorer, and the Blue Hens will be without him for two months. What's the impact of the injury? We are going to see what Coach Inglesby can do. We know he's a talented coach, but he has been taken out of Ryan Daly. He no longer has his superstar player. He now lost Ryan Allen, his secondary superstar player. Now the ball is in the hands of Eric Carter, and it's his decision, him and Kevin Anderson, on how they want this team to go. I'm not uh, saying this team is destined for failure, but besides Carter and Anderson, I mean, you have your Cushings here and there. You have your Kyrie Walkers here and there. You have your—if they're transfers, if Colin uh, Gossens being something great, you don't have much to work with. So we're going to see what Coach Inglesby can do, what schemes he can put together, how he can make these players fill the void and fill the incredibly large shoes that not only Ryan Allen left with injury, but now Ryan Daly left with a transfer. And those two guys, Allen and Anderson, and then maybe you throw in Eric Carter, though it's a little bit different. To me, they're the only guys coming back to this team that you know can create offense. And we're not, we haven't even talked about what this team will be defensively. You have to be able to score in the CAA, and they, if without Allen, there is going to be a lot on the shoulders of Kevin Anderson early in the season, and he himself is coming back from a season-ending injury, tore his meniscus right at the beginning of 2018, so he didn't play at all in conference action. That's a lot to put on a sophomore, really going to be a freshman when we talk about CAA play, because he only played 15, 20 games. He played very well. But he was also playing as the third, fourth option. Now he's going to have a lot on him. He's going to be the number one scoring threat, the number one creator at least. Uh, he'll have Eric Carter there to help him out, but there's nobody else from the perimeter in that can just create offense. And I think the one big thing that Kevin Anderson does well is he is this unpredictable basketball player. He is good on the dribble. He's good on the shot. He is good with his moves to the basket. But he's played like a rookie last year. He was very non-safe with the ball. I mean, starting the season last year, there were two or three games where with 15 to 20 seconds left, the ball was in his hands. And we talked about that's not what you want. You give it to Ryan Daly. You give it to Anthony Mosley who can play safe with the ball and give it to somebody who can score. This is his opportunity that he needs to not only be more aggressive, drive more, pass more, cut more, but he needs to be safe with the basketball. We can't have your primary ball handler playing like he did last year, trying to make cross-court passes and losing the ball on dribbles. So again, Ryan Allen will be sidelined for the first for the next two months after undergoing surgery today to repair a metatarsal fracture in his left foot. It's his second surgery 
in the offseason because he had shoulder surgery following the season, immediately after to repair a torn labrum in his shoulder. He fully recovered from that, but now has this foot fracture that's going to cause him to miss two months, and we expect him back mid-December, does the team. I mentioned before, CAA Media Day was yesterday for the men's basketball CAA conference. It was today for the women. So the big thing that we kind of take away from that is the CAA preseason polls, which every coach will tell you don't really mean anything, but it gives us our first bearings, our first idea of where these teams fall among their peers. The men's team comes in ranked 7th out of 10 teams. The women's team comes in ranked 3rd. To me, these seem pretty fair. Without diving too deep into what the other teams have returning and the newcomers that the other teams have, it seems right about where both of these teams should be. The women's team I'm surprised about. Um, Nicole Anabosi going down, I think, is one of the biggest hits that any team could take, especially CAA-wise. You lose the CAA player of the year. She was everything for your team. But they still think that they're the third best team, tied with Elon uh, on the rankings. It's kind of um, enlightening for kind of a breath of fresh air that we talked about Nicole Anabosi, all these negative things. And Nicole Anabosi is actually in my finance class, and for the first time uh, for the entire year— she had no cast on her leg. She was walking on her own power, which is great. Not ready. Definitely won't be ready for basketball season. Um, but it's it's nice to hear that the Blue Hen team is still projected to be this good. Simone DeFries got CIA honors. Yep. Uh, she's the only member on the Blue Hen team to do that. Maybe more of the pressure will fall on her shoulders. Maybe she'll be able to handle it rather than these two guards. Yeah, and even without Anabosi, this is a team that has four or five starters returning. So... There's no way you replace the CAA Player of the Year with any one person, but compared to some of the other teams in the CAA, they still probably have more talent than most We're coming back to the team. And this is sort of where they finished last year, being on the precipice of the CAA championship, but not quite being among the best teams in the CAA. So I think it's, I think it's fitting to see them third, maybe fourth or fifth in this conference heading into the year. We'll get more into the men's and women's basketball team starting next week. Next week, we are happy to have Martin Inglesby, the Delaware men's basketball head coach, and Natasha Adair, the Delaware women's basketball head coach, joining our show live in studio. Adair will be on around 545, Inglesby at 615. So we're very happy to say that we'll have them on the show next week. And that will kick off our regular coverage of Delaware men's and women's basketball because in just a couple of weeks, the men's season kicks off. On November 6th, they have their season opener at Maryland. The women's team starts around that time, too, though they don't play at home until the beginning of December. So we'll start a little bit more with our WVUD coverage of men's basketball first. But both of those teams will be discussed on this show at length, in addition to Delaware football. So it'll be a lot of Delaware sports moving forward as we get into these seasons. And as we've alluded to, certainly a lot of storylines when both teams have their best players not returning back. And then you start to see guys like Ryan Allen also uh, sliding off the team due to injury for the first couple of months. So lots to follow here, and we're happy to have Inglesby and Adair coming on to the show next week. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. It's time now to take your Twitter reaction at WVD Sports. We have two polls out this week that we solicited responses for. The first, which team with a non-winning record has the best chance to make the playoffs the options are the 3-3 three and three New York Jets, the 3-3 three and three Jacksonville Jaguars, the 2-4 and four Denver Broncos, and the 2-3 and three Detroit Lions. The overwhelming winning answer with 50% of the vote, the 3-3 three and three Jacksonville Jaguars. Yeah, I 
I, I don't even know about that. I don't agree. I think if it wasn't going to be the Detroit Lions, it's going to be the Jets. Um, I think the Jets can get a wild card spot, and so will the Detroit Lions. Jacksonville still has their opportunity to win the division. But how – listen, I'm always going to support Blake Bortles. Blake Bortles is the best of all time. He's the boat. He torched the Patriots secondary in week two for 400-something yards. This – and I read an article, and I want to say I saw it on PTI with Wilbon. And he kind of just said this Jacksonville defense is overrated. And I kind of disagree. I think this Jacksonville defense is elite. But you saw how bad they were against the Dallas Cowboys. Dak mm-hmm. Prescott made them look They're silly. not the best defense in football. No. They're far from that. They're an above-average defense. But it's foolish to think that they're as good as Baltimore or even a couple other teams in the league. And Blake Bortles is an average quarterback. He's an average quarterback on a good day. On a good day. He's on, below average most days. And he has most of his weapons are gone. He's no he's no longer throwing over Allen Robinson and Allen Hearns down the fly, which is the most entertaining thing I think I've ever imagined. I don't like this Jacksonville team. I would probably actually vote for the Jets here because I think that Miami's fake and even though they haven't looked like it, the Bills are obviously not a good team as long as Josh Allen doesn't start and now they're starting Anderson, I believe, over Nathan Peterman. Um, which is so sad. I want to see how bad Nathan Peterman can just like how he if he can sustain this bad of play over the course yeah. of the season, that would be amazing. I mean, see. the law of averages has to get to. He could potentially be the worst quarterback of all time if he's not already. Yeah. So I'd love to see him be able to build on that case. That's, anyway. That that team is not hoping for anything. That team needs to just because Josh no, Allen was the number one draft pick. Josh Allen Nathan gave that team hope that not hope to win the division, not right. hope to win the Super Bowl. But it gave him something to grab onto because Josh Allen was actually playing well. well. He was one of the better runners there. Uh, The Denver Broncos, I think, are an absolute lost cause. If they're not the third worst team in football, I think the the second worst team in football. Obviously, the Oakland Raiders are the bottom of everything. And the Detroit Lions, I don't know why they're not good, frankly. I guess it's the same. It's this is just who the Lions poor are. Poor run game. This is how they always have been. No defensive stop when you need it. Matthew Stafford's going to throw the ball fifty times anyway. Uh, actually, Andrew Luck just broke Matthew Stafford's record of pass attempts through the first six weeks of football. Um, yeah, I, my vote would probably go to the New York Jets, and that's what the second percent. Yeah, I I agree with this pick, but I also agree with what you're saying. I'm not in love with this Jacksonville team, three and three, but. This division's so bad; they're tied for the division lead. It's so that an to awful me, division. that to me is why they have the best chance of making it. Because the Jets have to leapfrog, I think, two teams from the AFC North for a wild card spot: the Chargers from the South or the Dolphins from their own division. I think the Chargers are the most likely team to get a wild card, but then I think one of Cincinnati, Baltimore, and Pittsburgh is in line to get a wild card in the AFC. So I think that's very difficult for New York to vie for, and they're certainly not going to win that division with the Patriots having everything together. So I think Jacksonville does have the best chance because Tennessee is horrible. They're minus 20. Houston, we've talked about Deshaun Watson earlier, is not the same team they were a season ago. They have a lot of problems. So if Jacksonville can win games in the division, even if they get torched by other teams outside of their division, Some outside of the conference, the division. they have to win. Yeah, somebody's got to win. And they do have... Corners that can roll with DeAndre Hopkins, if anybody can. They do have a defensive pass rush that'll feast on Tennessee, who just gave up 11 sacks last week. So I think Jacksonville has the best chance of those teams to make the playoffs. On to the next Twitter poll, and this one I thought was actually more interesting, and this was which 
winning record team will not make the playoffs. And this was the Miami Dolphins at 4-2, and two, the Pittsburgh Steelers at 3-2-1, and one, the Minnesota Vikings at 3-2-1, and one, and the Carolina Panthers at 3-2. and two. And not really surprisingly, the Carolina Panthers got no votes. I think they were the most locked out of those th- four teams to uh, make a playoff spot. But the Miami Dolphins with 56%, the Pittsburgh Steelers with 33%, and the Minnesota Vikings with 11%. The Vikings surprised me. I'm surprised only 11% voted for the Minnesota Vikings because they're in their division. You either have to get past Aaron Rodgers, or you got to get past a Bears defense, which might be one of the best in football, a extremely improved Mitch Trubisky with now a tandem of running backs and Jordan Howard and Tariq Cohen. Now it's kind of moving more towards Tariq Cohen and a good bunch of pass catchers. Trey Burton has been serviceable. He's been a good tight end for the Bears. He's been a good safety net. Allen Robinson has become this revitalized version of himself. He's no longer a huge deep threat, but he's a consistent wide receiver. It's a, this might be the hardest division if it is not the NFC South. I agree with that. I I also agree with the team that won this poll overwhelmingly, though, in the Dolphins. I don't think the Dolphins are going to make the playoffs. They're without their starting quarterback now next week, Ryan Tannehill. And like I mentioned before, I think the Chargers have the inside track to a wild card spot in the AFC. And then you have to battle against two of the three teams in the North that won't win the division. So two of Cincinnati, Baltimore, and Pittsburgh. So to me, Miami clearly is the answer to this question, though I agree with you, Minnesota has a tough path. It's it's very tough, but I think this team is talented enough, especially offensively. We talked a lot about this team last year defensively as being the best defense in the NFC and winning with defense and Case Keenum and the offense doing enough. This year, it's kind of the opposite. The defense is just doing enough, and the offense with Kirk Cousins, Adam Thielen, the top receiver in football, Stephon Diggs, who I think is a little bit overrated, but is still a very quality number two wide receiver. And Kyle Rudolph, one of the better tight ends in the NFL. Not to mention Dalvin Cook, who we really haven't seen unleashed yet because he hasn't Latavius been healthy. Latavius Murray, baby. They have one of the better offenses in the NFC, probably the third, maybe fourth best offense in the conference. So that gives them a chance. And they're right in the mix. They're just a half game back of the Bears. They're tied with the Packers. The Packers, I don't want to play against Aaron Rodgers, obviously, late in the season. But he's not been healthy. He's not been 100%. He's not been himself. So that makes that team vulnerable. And then I still think the Bears have a lot to prove. It's only five games into the season. Can Mitch Trubisky sustain this average to above average play for the long run? I I don't know if we know that yet. The Vikings are the more experienced team and the far better offensive team. You brought up Adam Adam Thielen, and I want to bring him up again. He's the best wide receiver in football. I don't think anyone was expecting to say Adam Thielen is the best wide receiver in football right now. He, I believe, is on pace to break the receptions record. He has tallied 100 yards or more in every game he started, which is all of them. He is alongside a more talented wide receiver in Stefan Diggs. Stefan Diggs is an all-around better. He's better at pass catching, route running. But Adam Thielen is making it work. Adam Thielen's one of the best route runners in the league. I... If not, I'm high on. I'm my well. I don't know. Well, I don't know how you can call Diggs better at anything right now because Thielen, well, that's his what I'm counterpart saying. on the same offense is far outgaining him in yeah, every category. He's outgaining him in every category. The l- less talented wide receiver is doing more with what he's given, and I think that's what's 
this whole amazing thing about Adam Thielen because this is unexpected. Kirk Cousins, when he came uh, to the Vikings, he the first player that he mentioned was Stephon Diggs. He was excited to throw the ball to Diggs, and now Thielen's doing everything. He was undrafted. He got a $500 scholarship to college. He played in, what, a D3 school, didn't get invited to the combine, went off for a walk-in tryout, and now he's going to break the NFL reception record. Well, I don't think he's going to break. It, but we got a long way to go before we're going to say he's breaking the He's, NFL he's on pace record. to break the NFL reception we're record. We're still— Five, six games in for them. But it's been an impressive start for sure for Thielen. Anything else to note on our Twitter polls there? What about Pittsburgh? They're 3-2-1. and one. Right now they're half game behind Cincinnati and Baltimore in their division. Le'Veon Bell supposed to return. Hope has James Conner enjoyed his last touches as a Pittsburgh Steeler. He's not going to get the ball when Le'Veon Bell plays. Your thoughts, though, on the Steelers and their playoff chances at this point? They're going to get beat by the Ravens down the stretch, and then they're going to be get, get beat by the Bengals down the stretch. But they're going to bully all the other teams, and they're going to find the way. If it's not the division victory, it'll be a wild card. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. It's time to talk about Delaware football. A big game this weekend against New Hampshire. You wouldn't think it based on these teams' records on paper. Delaware 4-2, and two, New Hampshire 1-4, and four, excuse me, 1-5. and five. But this is a very, very talented Wildcats team. A Wildcats team that was... Picked to finish above Delaware heading into the season. They lost their starting quarterback, Trevor Knight, in week one. He missed the next few weeks. But now he's back. And this is a New Hampshire team that will not go down lightly, playing in their home field this weekend against the Blue Hens. Delaware, despite that big win last week against previously number 5 ranked Elon, still is probably looking at an end-of-season scenario where they need to win four, probably five of their final six games. And after this week... They'll face off against two more ranked teams, Towson and Stony Brook. So this is a weekend that the Blue Hens really cannot afford to slip up. It's I feel like we're having Rhode Island conversation flashbacks when we mentioned to, especially when we mentioned to Rhode Island, we said they're going to look back at this game and say, all right, this is going to be a game that's going to be a big thing. This is even bigger. If they... For some reason, somehow fail to lock down a win against a team like New Hampshire. Not only is their season maybe I don't want to say over; it's they're still going to be four and three, and they'll be two and two in the CAA. Um, it's going to look a little bleak. Uh, and this is a team that they should just get their stuff done, ground and pound the run game, and just move on. Shouldn't have too much to talk about. I I'm going to push back a little bit on that because. This New Hampshire team is, in my opinion, a lot better than their record indicates. It, you know, They have the pieces in place now that we expected to be the second-best team in the CAA. They have the CAA preseason player of the year back healthy, Trevor Knight, and he's performed pretty much up to expectations in the last two weeks. So I don't think Delaware can go into this matchup in Durham thinking that this is a game that's extremely winnable or a game that they should come away with. I think this should be viewed as an even playing field, if not as a game in which the Wildcats are maybe favored a little bit slightly playing at home. But uh, yeah, I agree with that. And I think it's a better team than the record shows. And I think a lot of these teams in the CAA, maybe not Albany, but because Albany might not be the best team, um, their record might not accurately show it. But for a team to be 0-5, they've played a lot of tough opponents for their first five games. They haven't looked good, period. I mean, they failed to score. They have some the lowest points. I believe they have 38 points in the CAA overall. 
something like that. They really haven't scored much. They don't have that great of an offense. Again, they get the quarterback, the quarterback back. But I don't know how much he'll be able to do because the team around him isn't that strong. And we talked about it in the NFL, how much can a quarterback do? It's college. The quarterback has a little more power, a little more running room. But I don't expect anything to really be a threat. Last week, the Wildcats lost to the Stony Brook Seawolves at home 35-7. to Stony Brook is, like Delaware, one of the teams in the top 25. Delaware jumping up to the second-to-last spot at 24 following their win against Elon. Let's go back to that game for a little bit, a 28-16 win. You and I actually haven't had a chance to discuss this game in detail yet. Started slow, but the second half, the Blue Hens take over, outscore Elon 21-6. to What did you like from the Blue Hens' performance? Pat Kehoe decided that he's just going to play football. He's not going to worry about the extra pressure on him, the extra noise. He's just going to play a good game. They got the ball into Joe Walker's hands a few times, and when they do that, they win. The run game was really good. Kanai Kane had 124 yards, 20-something yards. 124. He was great on the ground, and above probably all is the defense. I mean, they played uh, against an Elon team with the loss of their starting quarterback, the loss of their starting running back, and they did what they should have done against a backup quarterback and a backup running back, and that swallow them up and swallow them whole. The linebacker core played great. They did what they needed to do. Yeah, I thought the defense played their best game of the season. Troy Reader has 15 tackles in this game and four and a half for a loss. Early on, they're in that bend-but-don't-break mode with the offense turning it over four times. They only give up three points off those three turnovers. And then in the second half, almost shut down. They had the one deep play that Nigel Hill goes up in the first half. They gave up one scoring drive in the second half where they gave up a big player too. But for the most part, this this defense had everything locked up. And that's what we said Delaware would need to do to win big games coming into the season. We always had said it's going to be defense first and the offense doing just enough. Can the quarterback manage the game so that the defense can win it for this team and that the running game can win it for this team? And I think maybe for the first time this season, we saw that formula come into play against Elon. Pat Kehoe actually doing a, making some really nice plays in the second half, doing more than just managing the game. But the win is built around the defense's performance and then the solid running game throughout the entire afternoon. What I found was interesting is that I think Kehoe targeted Jamie Jarman more than most games. And Jamie Jarman has almost been a non-factor in He's every game. He's been getting a debate. lot of targets. But they are yeah. really looking at Jamie Jarman. They're trying Jarman. to get him going. But I don't know if it's necessarily trying to get Jamie Jarman going or that teams are finally realizing we need a free man on Joe Walker, that he is talented enough that we need to mark a free man on him, which opens the field for your Jamie Jarmans, your Vinny Papalis, and your Charles Scarfs. That might be it, but regardless, it's great for Kehoe to not only have to be able to just look for Walker downfield. You can now get more comfortable with Jamie Jarman. I think Jamie Jarman's more running more under routes than he is flying deep down the sideline. I mean, I think it's I think it's fair to say that, but Jamie Jarman also had one catch for six yards. Yeah. So there's some disconnect there, right? They're, tr- they're trying you, to get him going. If you think that he's he's open and you know there's an opportunity for him to make a bigger impact on this offense, which I agree with, then my question is, then why has that it happened? Because defenses earlier in this season, I think, were heavy in the box, right? Their main focus was slowing down Kanai Kane, Dejan Lee in the running game. Now, maybe more recently, they're giving a little more attention to Joe Walker because what he did when 
we're stacking the box, right? If, we, if we're leaving Joe Walker out there one-on-one, he's making big plays like he did against Cornell and like he did against Richmond. So now that attention maybe shifts from the running game to Joe Walker. But all this while, Jamie Jarman has not had that attention. And, I mean, what's his most catches in a game? Two or three this yeah. season? And he's been getting six or seven targets a game. It's like when we talked about men's basketball last year with Darian Bryant. Darian Bryant was in the funk of all funks. I've never seen somebody in a worse funk than Darian Bryant was. He wasn't scoring. The two games he played against Towson, I don't think he scored. And they tried to get him the shots. They tried to run plays for him. And after a while, he started to break out of it a little bit. One shot led to another, and he started to break out. I think that's what they're trying to do, but basketball is different than football. Basketball, you can have 10 shots, and your team still wins by 30. Football, Mm -hmm. if you look for Jamie Jarman five or six times in a game and none of them go for anything more than six yards— you might not win that football game just because of that point. When are we going to start seeing Vinny Papali if you take the wide receiver to roll? I don't think we're going to see that soon. I think Vinny Papali is also better in the slot. Yeah. But we saw, and we're starting to see it a little bit more when they are in two tight end personnel. Some drives, they will use Walker and Papali. Yeah. Um, it's probably 60 40 Jarman to Papali in that situation. And then when they're in three receivers, it's all three of those guys. Although we did see for one drive, at least this past weekend, Gene Gene Coleman Coleman takes snaps from Jamie Jarman. Um, One thing that I will say, maybe backing off this point a little bit, is that maybe it doesn't matter. You know, maybe Jamie Jarman is just not a guy that they need. Joe Walker have fun. Yeah. I mean, Joe Walker is clearly the top receiver. Vinny Papali has made a great impact out of the slot. And then Charles Scarf has really become a true red zone threat. He is their top guy inside the 20. Two really nice catches in the red zone in this game. Same the play, first one, just flipped yeah, over. Exactly. The first one is a little bit more contested. Somehow gets his foot in. Second time, he's isolated. You can tell everybody's to that side. They're going to Charles Scarf. He's one-on-one. And that's a matchup that he's going to win 80% of the time. And there's a lot of chemistry between Kehoe and Scarf. I also think the chemistry is developing with Papali. Uh, and then we know what Joe Walker can do. This guy, when the he, the numbers in this game against Elon are not crazy, two catches, 25 yards, four carries for 17, but he spurs that third touchdown drive. When they go into Wildcat and he's running the read option, they get the first couple first downs going, and then they open up down the field with the play to Papali. Things changed in this game when he started to get involved. First half, Walker was not getting the ball. Second half, he was. And then you start to see those secondary options, Papali and Scarf really making an impact. Maybe Jeremy Jarman doesn't need to be a part of this offense because these other guys are producing on a fairly weekly basis. Isn't it funny how two years ago, I remember the conversation we were talking about, and I said, you get two things from Joe Walker— you get mediocre, and this is when Joe Walker was the quarterback. You get mediocrity, and every once in a while, he'll pull out something great. And now, two years later, Joe Walker is a quarterback converted into the wide receiver position. And now we're saying you get two things from Joe Walker boom plays in the wide receiver position and great reads in the Wildcat when he gets decided to run the ball. This is the best 180 I think Delaware could have ever imagined that Joe Walker, because we knew he's a talent. He is an, a talent you don't see very often. He's athletic. He's good with the football. He's good running. He's smart. That they got to use him in a way that benefits this team. Because if he was quarterback right now, we can speculate all we want, but it won't be where we're at right now. Kehoe has been the better quarterback. Agree. And Joe Walker has finally found his footing on this team. And my only bit of speculation is what if we found this out earlier? What if we found Joe Walker's talents in the yeah. wide receiver position? 
Imagine your three wide being Cherry and Walker on the outside and Jarman on the inside, especially the Jarman of last year. That's a tough wide receiver core to try and contain. I think they're better this year. Yeah, I, I would, agree. I would take Papali, Jarman, and Walker over that crew. Yep. I, I never really saw a whole lot from Deontay Cherry, but that is interesting to think about because Joe Walker certainly had chance after chance at quarterback starting as a redshirt freshman under Dave Brock and then for each of the next two seasons. If they had pulled the trigger on a position change after maybe even two full seasons, I think that'd be plenty to make a decision on. And then before last year, they say, okay, we're going to give J.P. Caruso and Pat Kehoe the opportunity to be in a quarterback competition instead of Caruso and Walker. That would have been interesting. And we even saw at the end of last year, before he had the full offseason, him making plays and really being a big reason why they won that game up at Maine, making some plays later in the season against Albany at home. What if, what if they had that throughout all of last season? Would that have made the jump? Because those first four games, they probably would have been the same record with J.P. Caruso based on the way that he played the rest of the season. And then what if Pat Kehoe even got more opportunities earlier in his career? Who knows what he would have turned into? Because in my opinion, he's been a lot better than what J.P. Caruso and Joe Walker showed last season. Yeah, I think he's more confident. I don't think Caruso was confident. Caruso came in in that Stony that. Brook game. And I think that Stony Brook game was the most most confident I've seen J.P. Caruso in all the games he started last season. He was win-focused. He was move-the-ball-downfield-focused. He's like, I'm gonna, he's going to take any shot that he needs to to win that game. And then as the season went on, whether it's he might have not um, – entrusted his abilities as much or he might have been getting used to a game plan whatever it may be he wasn't as confident as he was during Stony Brook Kehoe game one against Rhode Island why that was not a pretty game but he looked good he looked we talked about it in the Delaware football roundup we said Kehoe looked good regardless yeah, it wasn't his fault that they yeah, lost the game I'm happy if Kehoe gives me that every single game while I'm not thrilled I'm not mad it's a yeah. decent outing and he's doing that all throughout every game to date with North Dakota State being a little blimp, best team in the we, nation. We, we can let that one slide. He's looked great, and I think he's going to even look better as the stakes get higher, especially homecoming against Towson. He's the third passer in the CAA in terms of passing yards per game with 210.8. Delaware, the three seasons before Kehoe became starting quarterback, ranked last in the CAA in passing yardage per game. And in two of those three seasons— they average less than 100 yards per game. So he's nearly doubled their output across the averages of those three seasons. And if you take out the game against North Dakota State, he jumps up to about 234 passing yards per game. So he's been very good against the competition at Delaware's level. He had a f- game that you just love to forget and throw aside, and I think he's done that against North Dakota State. It's been some time since that game, about a month already. He he looks really good, in my opinion. Struggled a little bit in the first half. I think that second fumble where he has the blindside pressure, he could have done a better job of tucking the ball away once he feels the guy on his back. He kind of let the ball hang out there, and it gets slapped out of his hands. The interception, though, is not his fault. It's off the hands of a receiver. And the first fumble is a really nice play by the defense when he's taking a read option keeper up the middle, and it gets poked out from behind. So there are small places for him to improve, but we're not sitting here asking where, where the— Blank is the passing offense, like Blue Hens fans have been asking for three seasons before. Where do we go? Where do we go from here? We have a game coming up against New Hampshire. 
Then we hit Towson down the stretch. We hit Stony Brook down the stretch. We hit Villanova down the stretch. I think we expected the Towson this three game stretch from New Hampshire to Towson uh to Towson. They have one team in the middle, and I can't remember what team that is. Albany. Albany. And they have Stony Brook. And they guess they go at Stony Brook. I think we imagined uh, in our pregame prediction that these four games are going to be the hardest stretch for the Blue Hens. We knew we start including Elon before this. Yeah, Elon, New Hampshire. I would say five games. I would say three of those five would be really tough. Yeah, and, and you, those you would have thought you would have thought Towson and Albany were winnable, not easy, but winnable games, and that the other three, Delaware, might not even be favored. Would probably not be favored to win against yeah. Elon, New Hampshire, and Stony Brook. This is a huge stretch for the Blue Hens. They travel they go far they go to new hampshire come home for towson they go albany and they go to stony brook it's a lot of moving around it's a lot of different game plans these teams do different things well towson they're gonna i highly doubt that you we will ever see delaware stack the box against towson because flacco can throw the ball and not the joe flacco the tom flacco can throw the ball anywhere stony brook they're pretty balanced you're gonna see delaware do both things a lot of different systems a lot of different offenses this is gonna be a big test for the delaware blue hens Right now, if you take a look at the CAA standings, it's Towson and Maine atop the rest at a perfect 3-0 and in conference play. Then you get to James Madison and Stony Brook at 3-1. and Then the Blue Hens, Elon, and Rhode Island at 2-1 and in conference play. That's the mix. Those are the seven teams that all still have playoff aspirations. And there's really not a whole lot that separates them. All seven of those teams are in the playoffs. And I think at this point, it's premature to start comparing their resumes. But what you can say is anytime these seven teams are up against one another, they have a chance to separate, right? So if if Delaware plays Towson and they beat Towson, that's an opportunity for Delaware to step ahead of the Tigers. When they play Stony Brook, it's an opportunity to maybe knock Stony Brook out. These are almost playoff games. They have a cushion of maybe one loss, but... You could also say none of these games will be easy because even the ones against non-ranked opponents, New Hampshire this weekend, Villanova in the final game of the season, Albany's probably the the most winnable of the remaining games. But those two games, they're not easy games. Uh, So they have a one-game cushion, but then you also look at two games that they'd be favored in that they could still very easily lose, and it becomes a tough road, but it also is a tough road for all of these teams uh, in the mix. I think Elon has the shortest stick right now because of the injuries that they've sustained. Davis Cheek, who went down in the game against Delaware, their quarterback is out for the season with a torn ACL. Their leading running back, Malcolm Summers, his status is still in question. So maybe Elon of those seven teams is the first that you could cast aside. But everybody else is very much in this mix. I would, yeah, I'd agree with Elon, but I also think Rhode Island is a team that is just not looking like the Rhode Island in the first two games of the season. They are a... They di- lost last week 38-36 to 36 to Maine. They're a, point loss. they're a dynamic offense. Lawson is great in that center position. But what... what not necessarily, I don't want to say what's happened to them because they're still playing good football, but they were the bottom team in the CAA preseason polls. They beat Delaware. They started 2-0 on the season. They kept winning and winning. I think they've really slowed down. And I think that if it's not Elon to fall out of that mix, I would say it's Rhode Island to be the second team to fall out. 
And kind of to my point, you look at their schedule this weekend, it's at Stony Brook. Yeah. Right? So if if they lose to Stony that's Brook. A, that's, a, that's almost a knockout punch right there. Now you look at the rest of their schedule, they'd have Elon, JMU, and New Hampshire left in their final three of their final four games. That's a team that gets closer to, all right, do they knock it? Do they fall out of the top 25? Are they in this conversation? But if they beat Stony Brook, all of a sudden it's is Rhode Island one of the best two or three teams in the CAA? I mean, they you know they, their only losses, only the CAA loss, a two point loss against Maine, who's undefeated. Like, just these next couple of weeks are going to be really interesting to see what happens. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. It's time for the second installment of our now weekly big facts segment. Three big facts. This week about what's critical for Delaware Blue Hens football this weekend at New Hampshire. Kick us off with big fact number one. The big fact number one is put the ball in Joe Walker's hands. He is the most dynamic player on the Blue Hen offense. If you are trusting one person to score, I am trusting Joe Walker 10 times out of 10 times. Put the ball in his hands. Did you ever think you'd say that? No, I didn't. Like like I said a little while ago, two years ago, if you would tell me, that I'd be saying, if you need points and you need offense you to put the ball in Joe Walker. Walker's hands, I'd call myself crazy. Give the ball to Joe Walker, whether it be a pass downfield, whether you let him pass downfield, not the entire game, but you <laughs> let him pass downfield for one or two plays. We saw it during Richmond, the beautifully constructed flea flicker Last to two Jamie games, Jarman. He's two for two passing, 70 passing yards. And 40 of them came on the Jamie Jarman completion during Richmond. Give the ball to Joe Walker and let him do his thing. What did you think of... Him returning kicks last week. I don't care. Put them in. I I was like, put him, that that you, to you me. You want me to put him as a water boy? Fine. Let him be the water boy too. <laughs> well, that to me definitely made me think. Danny Rocco and the Blue Hens agree with that sentiment. Yeah. In that when we're in a big game against Elon, the coaches are thinking we have to get Joe Walker involved, and they're going to do so in any way possible. That was the first time we've seen him run back kicks. And he didn't make any explosive plays off of it. I, I do kind of like Lee, though, back there more. And Lee and Papali, I might like them, I don't want to say better than Joe Walker on a consistent basis, but if you need a spark, put Walker in. But I might kind of shade towards Papali and Lee, actually, now that I think about it. We'll see what they come out. I wouldn't be surprised if they go back to those guys yeah. this week and maybe they only go to Walker, like you said, when they're trying to Once spark something. Once or twice, need a spark unexpected. And I think last week they thought we need to make every single play possible to beat Elon, and it turns out Davis Sheik gets hurt, and you have a little bit more wiggle room. Um, but I, I totally agree. Get get the ball in his hands. I think there are still some more creative things that they can incorporate offensively if they want to, as far as jet sweep action, wildcat action with Joe Walker. They run the jet sweep nicely. They really yeah, have I'd like to see multiple more. players to run the jet sweep. Even if it's Jamie Jarman running the jet sweep, we saw that a few times. We saw, well, we saw him threaten the jet sweep a few times. We haven't seen it completed, but they have uh-huh. definitely. I mean, and last year, we certainly saw it in that game against Richmond. Jamie Drummond was huge on the two, score, yeah. two extremely. The, the front flips, the back flip score. Which that, way they flip forward? The front he, flip. Yeah, it was like whatever. It is. One and a half flips, and then before that, the one down the field, uh-huh. which was like sixty or seventy yards or something. He was big on that. I'd like to see Joe Walker get a few more chances. Late in games, you know, when they're crashing in on Kanai Kane, work him around the back end and see if he can't spring a big play. And then obviously in the passing game, as a pass catcher, he is big time. Big fact number two, I'll take this one. Establishing the run is very important for this Blue Hens team. They can win now. We've seen it. Off 
a long down the field passing attack. We saw it against Cornell. We saw it to some extent against Richmond, but they're still at their best when the running game is established. That allows Geho to go off play action. You get those boot actions. You get the jet sweep going maybe a little bit. And when you do get a lead, you're able to put the game on ice. And that's ex- exactly what the Blue Hens did this past weekend on that final scoring drive where it was 50 plus yards, six plays, all of them runs. Kanai Kane punches it in from two yards out after a 30 plus yard run to get him down to the goal line. That's exactly what this team needs. Kane last week, a career-high 124 rushing yards, his second game this season above 100 yards. He's the only running back to do so. There was the question coming out of the open date, you know, as Dejon Lee maybe taking a bigger slice of the pie. This Monday, Rocco said Kane's touches are exactly where we want them to be. He's a 20-25 to 25 touch guy. Dejon Lee is going to be the 10-15 to 15 touches on a weekly basis in the running beam and trying to get him a little bit more involved in the screen game as the change of pace guy. He's a great compliment, but I think it's very important for Delaware to establish that bruising inside threat like Kanai Kane. Now, we we don't have a passing back. I mean, there's no one that we're going to bring in. I think Stony Brook, when they had Leotine healthy, they really utilized him as a passing back. Uh, he's always is also a great runner, but we haven't, Delaware doesn't really have a passing back. I guess Lee, well, no, Kane caught the first pass of the year. That screen back. before halftime yeah. against Rhode Island. And it's not that we need it because of when we're calling a pass play, we're aiming downfield. But that might be where Lee might find his touches if he's eager to find touches to improve on that pass catching, that screen play, that four or five yard dump if Kehoe needs it. That could be the place if if Dayton Lee wants to get a few more touches, wants to reach that 20 times the balls in his hand kind of game. And I don't think they necessarily want to get him to that point. He had six carries against Elon. Rocco said he would have had more, but it was the first time that Delaware really ran their quarterbacks, so that's where some yeah. of those touches went. They went to Kehoe early on and then Walker at the end of the game. I think it's a, I think right now it's a good balance. If if they do get Kane established, I think this is right where you want the backfield to be. And I don't think they even really need to go any deeper than Kane and Lee. We saw a little bit of Andre Robinson. We haven't seen Corey Sproul since the open date. I haven't seen any Kareem Williams or Thomas Jefferson this season. I think those are the two backs. They're they're perfect complements to each other in terms of their play style, Kane and Lee, and getting them going I think is very important for this team. Fact number three, Jake. Third fact, we're going to go a little numbers heavy here. For the second time since 2014, the Blue Hens are in the top 25 during the regular season. The last time was last year. You mentioned it. Well, you wrote it in the doc <laughs> after their win against Richmond. They put themselves in the top 25. Few other numbers is that three out of the remaining five games, their opponents to this point have zero wins, and De- this is Delaware's first top five win since 2013. What do all these numbers mean? Is that the people are finally recognizing Delaware as a good football team, and it's now Delaware's opportunity to make sure that they recognize that they are not only a good football team this week, but they're a good football team in general. They need to keep this play going. They need to keep spirits high, keep the morale high of both the fans and the players and do what they do best. That's run the ball, win on defense, and get Joe Walker the football. Before we go to break, real quick, Jake, I'll probably ask you this a couple more times throughout the rest of the season, but as we stand or sit here today with six games gone by in Delaware season, do you put their playoff odds at more or less than 50%? More. I definitely take the over on that. If you told me 75%, I'd think about it. I'd take the under, but I wouldn't be... Um, against somebody who might say the over. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. Jake, two nights ago, something 
we haven't experienced in a long time. Went home, sat down, watched some Sixers basketball. The first game of the season, Boston versus Philadelphia. The Celtics come on top, out on top 105-87. to Later on that evening, the reigning NBA champions, the Golden State Warriors, take down the Oklahoma City Thunder, who are without Russell Westbrook. Then last night, everybody's in action. Tonight, if you didn't play before, you're starting your season. Perfect time for us to give a couple predictions for the NBA season. We're not going to go too deep into the NBA right now because, as we talked about earlier on the show, there's so much going on in the world of sports, both here at Delaware and nationally. But as we progress probably into early November, later December, our show's going to become a lot more NBA-heavy, a lot more NBA-focused. So we will have a lot more time to get into these topics. But for now, to bring up a couple things that stand out to us, we're going to give two bold predictions each for the season. It can be anything. It doesn't have to be a team's record. It can be a player, an award, really anything. Two bold predictions uh, to spur some conversation about the NBA as it started a couple nights ago. My first one is that there will be five 60-win basketball teams in the NBA. Can I guess them? You can guess them. Golden State, Houston. Yep. Boston. Correct. Now it gets interesting. Who do you? Who else do you think is going to be sixty plus? OKC. I do not have OKC as a sixty-one team. I have five sixty-one teams and one Toronto? honorable mention. I have Toronto definitely on my list. Utah. I do not have Utah. Lakers. Not the Lakers. Is it East or West? It is an Eastern Conference team. Philly. I think Philly hits sixty on the dot. Ah, uh, I don't. I don't. I don't agree with that. I. I think they get sixty on the dot. No more, no less. My honorable mention was the Denver Nuggets win sixty. I don't think they can even get fifty, but I would it's love to see it happen. Yeah, I'd love to see it happen. Uh yeah, I think there'd be five sixty win teams, and the odds of this, uh, I believe, was a eighty five to one was the odds that were pegged. There'd be five sixty one <laughs> sixty uh, one teams. I saw that stat online. I think Golden State, Houston, and Boston are almost locks to get sixty. I think Toronto, yes, they don't have DeRozan. I don't think they're a better. I don't think they're a better basketball team with Kawhi Leonard, but Kawhi Leonard's a better player. I think they'll get sixty, and I think Philly will get sixty on the dot. I have a lot of speculation for Philly down the road, but Philly right now, I think, can do sixty. I don't think the Sixers are deep enough to be that team night in, night out. I think they're probably in the range that they were last year. 52, 53, maybe 54 wins. They had 52 a season ago. Not, they have not really made, I mean, it's one game, but watching that game, my impressions of the team were they haven't really made any improvements from yeah. last year, and they're not very deep. Obviously, they're going up against probably the deepest team in the NBA when you think about guys 4 through 11 on the roster in the Boston Celtics. Which but is my, the rotation, my second fact, my second <laughs> goal prediction. The rotation's really thin for Philly. I think Golden State is a lock. I think Boston's got a great chance because of the depth, because when guys need to sit out nights here and there, they have guys who can fill the lineup. I think they they become more interesting when we talk about playoff matchups, but in the regular season, I think they're almost a lock for the number one seed in the East. I think we could see Houston slip off that 60-win pace. I don't think they got better. I think they got worse by losing Luke Rouchard and Mute and Trevor Ariza. They looked gross with Melo, frankly, in their opening day game. When Melo was on the court, they looked gross. But it's so James I could Harden. see them slip into 57, 58 wins. Um, but I like I like the prediction. I like the take. I, you you mentioned Boston. What's your second one? My second one. Uh, it's that I have two bull predictions for two Boston players. The first is that Scary Terry Terry Rozier wins the Sixth Man of the Year award. Uh, other six men, six men, I guess is Lou Williams, J.J. Redick, 
Uh, I mean, Will Barton's starting, so he can't win that. Eric Gordon actually might be starting on Houston officially too. Um, but I think that he is the best sixth man, sixth man in basketball. And my second bold prediction for a Boston Celtic is that Jason Tatum goes first-team All-Star when the All-Star game comes he, around. He starts. He's a, he is a, a All-Star Eastern game starter. starter. Okay, okay. I see where you're coming from. I think with the six-man conversation, you could make a case that they have better guys coming off their bench potentially in Jalen Brown. Yeah. If he if he eventually comes off the bench, he started game one, so they basically started their five guys. I'll say whoever the Celtics sixth man is will win sixth man of the year if it's Brown, if and it's Rose. And you could talk you could talk about Marcus Smart too. Marcus um, Smart. Even uh Aaron Bain Bain I can't even pronounce that Bain's dude's last name. Bain. Right. Yeah, Aaron Bain. Right. Even if he doesn't get that full starting nod the entire season, he has potential to make it interesting. And I think with Tatum a lot of people are going to predict that big step forward, especially a big spike in scoring. It comes into this question of, okay, which forward is he going to beat out for a spot? Because you have Giannis, you have Kawhi, and then you have Joel Embiid as kind of the front court guys that are probably the front runners for that. So who does he beat out to make it onto that team? But I see the point. I, th- I think Jason Tatum, in game one at least, was the best player on the floor for Boston. I don't know if it'll be that way for this season, but I think he's he's certainly making a case for being maybe the number two or the number three guy on that roster. My first bold prediction, I'll take it out west. I think that there's going to be a separation of two games from probably seeding number four in the west to seeding number nine. I think it's going to be extremely tight and close, and I think all of those teams will be below 50 wins. I think there are going to be a lot of teams hovering around 500 out west because there are a lot of teams that have that one or two superstars, but they don't have the complete team yet. So I'm thinking about the Pelicans. I'm thinking about Denver. I'm thinking about Minnesota, who's kind of a mess right now. The Lakers, the Clippers. Utah I think all of Utah. I think all of those teams will be in the same mix, and I think their records are going to come out looking worse than you think these teams are because they're all so equally talented and they have to play each other four times a season. The West is weird because you have your powerhouses, obviously. But even if you pick the teams you expect to be at the bottom, your Sacramento Kings will be at the bottom. Your Clippers have a good chance to actually be at the bottom of this division. They are still good even basketball teams. Even a team like teams. Dallas. Like Dallas yeah. has Luka Doncic. They have they DeAndre Jordan Sturk now, Harrison Barnes. Like that team, you'd think like, oh, you know, in the East, you'd be like, oh, they could be a seven or eight seed. And they have no chance in the West. Yeah, and they are a hard team. So that's why come later in the season when they, these teams that have nothing to play for realize finally they have nothing to play for, they'll elevate and they'll become those knockout teams. And then my second prediction, real quick before we go to break, I think Phoenix makes the playoffs in yeah. the West. Yep, they are It scary. might be a game one overreaction. Devin Booker puts up 30-plus. DeAndre Ayton, everybody loved how he played in his debut. But they're young. They're fun to watch. I think that they'll be a team to to keep an eye on this season out west. I think they sneak in as seven or eight. Booker, Josh Jackson, DeAndre Ayton, that's a good team. Josh Jackson is going to be— Trevor Ariza. Come the end of the year, this is very bold and has no um, chance of being correct. I think Josh Jackson might be the best player on— pure born basketball player on that team. I, I, love, I love me some Devin Booker, though. Yeah. I saw— He last got paid year, and he deserves it. Last year, one of the Sixers games I went to was when they played the Suns. And Booker dropped thirty plus on him. He's just—he's such a smooth scorer. When he gets going, when he's hot, he 
compared to other guys when they're hot, is maybe the most one of the most unstoppable players when when he's on. They also signed Jamal Crawford, on offense, which I think I, I love. I love having a vet in in the locker room. I think that matters for a team that hasn't yet competed. You think about what guys like Amir Johnson and JJ Redick offered a really young Sixers team last yeah. year, and then they add Marco and Irson at the break. I think you need guys like that on those teams where his off the floor contributions will be more important than what he does on the floor. 